Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. Today, the self-taught engineer, entrepreneur, and one of the top angels of the past decade, Cyan Bannister, joins us. Cyan became the second female partner at Founders Fund when she joined in 2016 as she made the leap from angel to VC. On today's show, we cover her path from poverty to tech, the inspiration that helped her realize her potential, how the dream team of angel investors Scott and Cyan Bannister came together, why they didn't raise their own fund, and the hesitation of joining others, her experience at AngelList with folks like Naval and Michael Dougherty. We talk about Founders Fund and why their approach is grounded in humility. We discuss the prevalence of startup founders that are replaced by VCs with new CEOs. And we finish up with Science candid thoughts on founders, investing, and how to provide value instead of extracting it. Cyan is a brilliant, self-assured, and honest venture capitalist. There are few like her, and it was a real pleasure interviewing her. I hope you enjoy it. Cyan Bannister joins us today from San Francisco. Cyan is a partner at Founders Fund. Founders Fund is a San Francisco-based venture capital firm investing in companies building revolutionary technologies with investments in PayPal, Airbnb, Facebook, Palantir, and SpaceX, among others. Prior to Founders Fund, Cyan was an early angel investor in Uber, Postmates, Affirm, and Niantic, the creator of Pokemon Go. A self-taught engineer and entrepreneur, Cyan has held any number of technical leadership positions throughout her career. Along with her husband, Scott, she was TechCrunch Angel of the Year in 2016. Cyan, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Thank you. So, Cyan, you know, you have a, a really interesting story and background uh, that led you to where you're at today. Feel free to start wherever you think makes the most sense, but can you tell us a bit about your life experience and how that led to where you're at now? Sure. Yeah. So I am a high school dropout. I managed to make it through, I mean, I think it was the 10th grade of high school. I don't have a college education at all. And this was something that I was very private about for a long time, partially just because of in our industry, there's a heavy bias towards you know MIT, Stanford, Georgia Tech, and Harvard Business School. And so I always just sort of felt like my experience and the path that I took was a little bit more shameful. And, you know, it wasn't until I started talking to people that I realized like how unique of a path it really was and that I should actually be proud of it. And it's worth telling, actually. And so 
when I was 15 years old, I was homeless. And how I became homeless is, to me, a little bit less interesting than kind of how I got off the streets. Part of it was, you know, you're in the situation where you don't really have a lot of choices. You have to figure out day by day how to survive. You've got to figure out how you're going to eat, how you're going to bathe, where you're going to sleep, and what that day's activities are going to be. You can't really think about tomorrow or a week from now or a year from now. And I most certainly never, ever, ever thought I'd be a venture capitalist. (laughs) So that was like the furthest from my mind. For me, I would have been happy to land a job at Subway Sandwiches or Jack in the Box or anywhere where I could just make a living in, in some way. And when I was on the streets, that was very difficult to do because it's hard to be clean. It's hard to schedule around a job when you have to make all these other things happen in your life. It's just very difficult to do. So a lot of the things that I did to make money when I was on the streets were selling jewelry, you know, collecting books that people gave away and reselling them to bookstores or clothing donations and going to Buffalo Exchange and selling them to Buffalo Exchange, selling art, poetry, you know, you name it. I tried everything to try to to make some money. And in some days that I made a dollar and sometimes I made $20. But, you know, that would often mean the difference between having a hamburger or, you know, uh, my favorite thing in the world was a Vietnamese rice bowl with vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> and so to me, that was decadence. Wow. And... I eventually, with the help of, you know, an amazing person in my life, there was a woman named Karen Brayton. She really helped me. And she was my boyfriend at the time's mother. And she agreed to take me in for a period of time. And she started mentoring me and started, you know, basically teaching me really important concepts like, you know, looking people in the eye when they talk to you. You know, she charged me rent. I had to figure out how to pay rent. You know, I got my first job working at a mall, working at a fried fish place. And then I started to have a purpose. From that point on, you know, I was able to make enough money to go and live on my own, which was fantastic because, you know, not having to worry about where you're going to eat or take a shower became less of an issue, but then it became sort of paycheck to paycheck problems, which a lot of people in America face. And in the world, you know, trying to figure out, can I afford groceries? Can I buy socks? So I made minimum wage. And that's when I started dreaming for the first time in my life, though. I don't think that before that I had any dreams. And I started thinking about, why don't I start a business? Like, why don't I, you know, before this, I'd sold jewelry and art and poetry and things like that. What if I made t-shirts? And so I started silk screening t-shirts and selling t-shirts that were like punk rock band t-shirts and made a living that way, some extra income. I was having a job, having my first paycheck, having my first small business that got me hooked on the concept of capitalism. I think before these moments in my life, I thought of capitalism as being this evil thing. You know, that, that's basically what was in the music that I listened to. It's what my friends talked about. You know, it it was the root of all evil. Sure. You know, the, the reason why <laughs> the reason why 
I didn't have anything and my friends didn't have anything was because of those dirty capitalists. <laughs> I was <laughs> so, just listening to some Rage Against the Machine today and it was certainly anti-capitalist. Oh yeah, yeah. All the music at the time was, you know, um, a lot of the angsty punk rock, you know, industrial music was very anti-capitalist. Yep. So I started to think about it in a very different way. And I started to think about the music I was listening to in a very different way. And so I started the great music purge of the time. I, I started listening to techno music and I was like, I'm not going to listen to music with lyrics anymore. I'm not going to identify with what other people are trying to tell me is right and wrong. And I'm going to try to figure out who I am. And that was actually a really pivotal point in my life. I got rid of all my band t-shirts I started not advertising for, for anyone on my body. And I started going to just really interesting political meetups that I found to try to figure out what politics were even all about, because I didn't have that luxury before to even really think about any of that either. You know, I just, I really started getting into just, again, thinking about the future. And it was around this time that I met a gentleman by the name of Chris Collins, who probably is the single most important turning point person in my life. I saw him walking by one day and he was wearing an item of clothing that I had made and sold. And it was my first time seeing a customer of mine walking around on the streets. Wow. And so I stopped him and I was like, Hey, I made that. <laughs> and he was <laughs> like, he's like, Oh, cool. And he sat down and started talking to me, told me that his mom had a sign shop and I should come over and hang out with him and his mom. And, I didn't end up doing it because, I don't know, there was something about the situation was just maybe a little too intense for me, and I didn't hang out with Chris. But what happened was, it was several months later, I saw him at a coffee shop that I hung out a lot at, and he was sitting there, and he was in front of this laptop, and the glow was on his face. And I was just kind of like a mosquito or a moth to a flame, <laughs> You know, I just like came over there and I was like, what is that? And I recognized him and I was like, oh, you're that guy that bought my stuff. <laughs> he's like, yeah, you never called me. And I was like, oh, well, let's hang out right now. So we hung out and we've been hanging out ever since. He's um, still to this day, one of my best friends in the world. And we see each other weekly. We talk on WhatsApp. He's one of the best human beings that you could ever know. And he is the person that I credit for getting into technology. Because he saw that I was capable. He's one of these people that sees, thinks that everyone's capable. And he's very inspirational and he's really positive. And so he told me that, you know, you can code, you could be a sysadmin, you could be anything you want to be. And this is the first time that anyone had ever said these things to me. Wow. You know, and I never had anybody tell me I could be anything. You know, most people thought that no offense, sorry if this is blunt, but most people thought I'd be dead or found in a dumpster somewhere by the time I was 22, probably. Pretty sobering thought, but nobody ever said, like, you're, you're smart and you're capable of a lot until Chris. So I started hanging out with him, and through him I met extraordinary friends who are also still friends to this day. And I started developing a better friendship circle. And I don't want to disparage the friends that I had because they were good friends, but they were friends that were not pursuing their passions. They were not entrepreneurial. They were not into technology. They also didn't appreciate capitalism. We, we kind of outgrew each other. And so 
I found where I belonged and I belonged with this group of computer engineer hacker types that really showed me the ropes and helped me to eventually get my first technology job. From there, I taught myself how to code, how to be a sysadmin and a network engineer. And there was another person who changed my life. Uh, his name's Lee Burton, who gave me my very first sysadmin job. And again, set me on, the, on a trajectory that was like a rocket ship from that point forward. You know, from there, I came to Silicon Valley. I went from making like $12, $14 an hour to making, you know, $65,000, $70,000, which I, I would have never dreamed was even possible. I worked at a bunch of different startups. I worked at a bunch of different internet service providers. And eventually I landed myself at a company called Ironport. At this point, I was established as a sysadmin. I had managed engineering teams I had some tech you know, background and experience, and I was a senior manager, so far cry from the girl on the street searching for a bagel and some cream cheese. And I had my very first exit, which was, again, profoundly life-changing. So this equity that I had in this company, because I remember trading more equity rather than salary, so every time you know, I would get a promotion and they would ask to give me more salary, I would ask for more equity. And I'm really glad I did. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> so, you know, I ended up with just an incredible liquidity event. And at that point, I had started dating my now husband, Scott Bannister. Maybe it's a little scandalous in this day and age, but he was the founder of Ironport. You know, but we didn't, I was not at his direct report and we didn't work together. You know, he, I asked him what I should be doing with the money that I made. And he said, well, you could go the stock market route, you could buy property, or you could do exactly what I do, which is you go and put it into high-risk startups. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, angel investing. So I'd never heard of angel investing before. And this is another one of those Chris Collins moments. Like my husband basically said, like, look, you're smart enough and you are an early adopter of just about just everything. Like you were on Twitter early. You found out about Facebook early. You're on Instagram early. You know all of these technologies long before I do or some of my friends do. And these are companies that I want to invest in. So why don't we team up together and I'll, I'll show you the ropes. And you couldn't ask for a better mentor than my husband. At that point, he'd already had a decade of experience. He's going on over 20 years now of investing experience. Wow. I mean, the guy can like, any sort of term sheet, any sort of anything like he, maybe I shouldn't say this. <laughs> he doesn't have to seek legal counsel. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> he, he can, uh, he can do it all himself. So he quickly identified my husband's very, I wouldn't say shy. He's very antisocial and he's an introvert. A lot of the deals that he would get were in network. And so like they were people from ex PayPal, ex Ironport, ex link exchange, and not really outside of that, you know, unless Max Levchin or somebody would email him and just say, hey, I've got this friend who's doing this thing and it's really interesting. He never really went outside of that sphere. He started to tap out all of those opportunities because you can only do so much of that. And eventually everybody's employed and has started companies and, you know, you have to wait another seven years, right? So he said, why don't you go to Disrupt and all of these dinners and these events and just see what you find? You know, and so we, we developed this 
whole thing where I was out being the public face of what we jokingly call Bannister Capital, which is not a venture firm. It's just him and I. (laughs) (laughs) It's just I called it Bannister Capital because it got me into events. It's funny because if you're an angel investor, you don't get invited to a lot of things. But as soon as you put the word capital at the end, you're like, ooh, that's legit. It's so (laughs) true. It's so true. And suddenly, like, I was on panels. I didn't have any speaking gigs until I put capital at the end of my my name. And then suddenly I started getting all these speaking gigs. It was really funny. <laughs> it was a little bit of a hack, uh, a funny hack. But from this, you know, it worked. So we discovered Uber this way. We discovered Thumbtack, Niantic, Pokemon Go, eShares, which became Carta, And this was all from going to these pitch competitions and going to networking events and meeting people that are completely outside of our sphere. Like we didn't know any of the Uber people or anybody within any of those networks. So like we were not part of the Google mafia. So it really paid off. And at some point, this was like 2007, 2008, which was a really good vintage year for angel investing. There wasn't a lot of competition. The problem after that was everybody started seeing how well some of these companies did, like Airbnb, Uber, et cetera, Twitter, and everybody became a seed investor. So there was like a ridiculous amount of seed capital being deployed. And I could argue that it's still the case. And so it became harder and harder to search for those needles in the haystack, so to speak. And you'd go to demo days and sort of the signal was going down. You know, I would walk away from them with less and less notes of companies I was interested in. And Scott was also getting fewer companies that he was interested in. So he said, you know, and the other thing is that the valuations were ridiculous. Yep. He said, why don't we just take a break for a while, you know, sit it out for a couple of years and just see if the, if the market corrects itself and we can always come back to this later. We're fine. You know, I'm, I'm one of these people that really likes to work. <laughs> and so... I I really couldn't just sort of sit on my rear and do nothing. So I basically asked him, like, hey, do you mind if I go and work at a place like AngelList or something for a while? He said, yeah, no worries. Like, go do that because I know you like being social. I know know you want to keep your network relevant. Because that's the other thing is, as you know, as an investor, you want to keep your network relevant. Yep. Otherwise, those opportunities just dry up. And then you have to go start over again. So I went to AngelList for a while. That was great. You know, I love working with Naval and that whole team was absolutely amazing. And what I did was I helped onboard angels like myself onto the platform by convincing them that it was a good idea to do so because I was actively syndicating deals on the platform for a period of time as well. And I guess this kind of sent this sort of international flair to the community that I was hireable because I think a lot of people didn't think that I would ever want to work at a firm or with people because we had our own thing going on for so long. So Founders Friend approached me and asked me if I wanted to join. And to be honest with you, like, I don't, I don't think I would ever join another venture capital firm if they'd asked me, like, this is the only one, because it's always been my dream to work with Founders Fund in any capacity, to be honest with you. Like, I probably would have come here and I always joke about this and empty the trash. (laughs) But but no, I mean, I just have a lot of respect for the team, you know, to be able to spend time with them and learn from the partners that I have here. It's just incredible. I didn't hesitate, even though one could argue that the economics really don't make a lot of sense 
if I'm so successful at angel investing, because I can actually make a lot more money directly investing in companies myself. But the thing that I get out of this, I see a breadth of companies that I wouldn't otherwise invest in. And I have the brains of 11 super talented, super smart other people that I can talk to about anything from biotech to spacecraft, sandwich delivery, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) and so these are things that I, you know, I couldn't do on my own just with Scott. You know, we talked about it and he also thought it would be a really good opportunity for me to learn the, the full stack, if you will, of investing. Because as an angel investor, you toss VC deals and you often don't understand why they pass on them. You're just like, what's wrong with those people? How could they not see clearly that this is like the greatest deal on earth? I've been through you know? many times. <laughs> it's just like, what is wrong with them? Yep. But now that I've been on this side, I understand now like how consensus investing works and how how you have magic bullets with VCs and you you should be very judicious about how you shoot them and on what deals and what sort of benchmarks you're looking for, how you know the economics of a fund work, how the size of the fund matters, all sorts of things that just I had no idea about. I have discovered in this process that I don't like late stage investing. I guess it's a good thing to learn. I really like the beginning phase of a company where everybody is sort of bright eyed and naive and they don't know what they don't know. You know, they're out there trying different things, seeing what sticks. It's fun. I like it up to like series A, series B, when it starts to get into all you're looking at are spreadsheets. Yep. And, you know, I just, I lose interest. (laughs) Yep. I've sat on many, many series B meetings now and you know, when we go through the rundown afterwards, I just find myself, my mind wandering and I just couldn't care less. It's a good thing to realize, you know, I am not a late stage investor. I know it's a long story, but that's how I got here. It's amazing. I was just talking to a buddy of mine the other day and he was, he was calling me like spreadsheet guy or something like that. And I was like, buddy, you, you can't, you know, misunderstand my job more. Um, I don't, I don't work with spreadsheets at all. <laughs> it's yeah. all people. Um, I hate spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, how, how early are you able to go at Founders Fund? Can you do like super early seed stuff, pre-seed stuff? Yes, yes. So I just uh, backed a company where the founder, actually, they just, it's public, so I can't talk about it. The founder is Roger Dickey, and he started Gigster. Before that, he started a company that was acquired by Zynga that became Mafia Wars. He doesn't even know what he's going to build yet. That's how early it is. Wow. You know, I can write checks for really talented people that I think are going to do really amazing things and know very little about what they're going to do to Series A is generally where I like to to sit. And even though we are a large fund, we earmark uh, about 2% for early stage investing. Well, that's great because the checks are smaller too. So. You probably do quite a few at the, oh, yeah. uh, the early stage. Yeah. yeah, as long as I can do my best to keep up with, I mean, the hard part is servicing all of those founders, right? Yep. Because at some point it becomes kind of untenable. You have to either just say, I can't offer you as much support as I would like or pick and choose ones you want to work on. But, you know, it, it could be, I mean, we have hundreds of companies now in our early stage portfolio. What is your your support? approach you know how do you think about working with founders post-investment i like to be pretty hands-off i'm not one of those meddling founders 
or it's not founders, investors. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. Not a meddling founder either. <laughs> I'm not a meddling investor. I I appreciate updates. In general, I wait until a founder reaches out to me with a very specific ask where they say, you know, my life would be changed if I could just meet this one person from Amazon. You know, I've tried everything, reached out to this person, that person, I can't meet this one person, can you help? Or we're having a really hard time hiring this one key engineering hire. That's where I shine and that's where I like to help. Or a lot of times when I get called, it's about things like HR related stuff where someone's dealing with a sensitive employee issue that they want help navigating or a marketing issue or a PR, sometimes even PR crisis or just PR issue. You know, that's how I like to do it. It's just, I'm available and you message me when you need my help. Got it. Got it. Very similar to our firm. Not, not to compare my firm to, to Founders Fund by, by any means, but but some some similarities there. So you said earlier that you try and be judicious with your magic bullets when working with other firms. Can you elaborate on that a bit and kind of explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, if uh, so I, I had a short stint in my life as a recruiter along this path. The story I was telling you, I was a recruiter for, I don't know, eight months or so. And how I differentiated myself as a recruiter from all the other recruiters out there was I said, when I send you an email, you're going to want to read it. And I'm not going to send you anyone that you're not going to want to hire. You may only get one email from me a year, but it's going to be one of the best engineers you've ever talked to in your life. People loved it because they were just like, wow, like that's so much better than having to sift through 50 resumes of garbage. Not that the people are poor or garbage, but the resumes are not good. They're not a good match. How about that? I I basically tell them like this one resume I'm going to send you is going to be the one you want to look at. So I'm very similar when it comes to the companies that I want to send to other people. I want to have high signals so that when people see me end up in their inbox, they're like, this is going to be interesting. I want to look at this and I should probably meet this founder. I try to do my homework ahead of time to try to figure out which partner is the right partner for the company. I find that a lot of founders don't necessarily always figure that out. And then most importantly, like what their fund size is and whether or not this would even be a match for them. Because a lot of people have their own, like we have to have our 16% ownership or they have their various different rules. Yep. Like won't participate with other funds, you know, so there's, why am I sending it to them? So you got to do all that research in advance. And I'm very careful about doing that. And I think if I ever were to become a founder or angel investor again, being armed with that information, I think, would make me more successful. How do you build a relationship with you know, the various folks in the network that may become really good partners down the road? We think about this a lot at the firm, and kind of our ace in the hole is, oh, we really need a, you know, a Series B. So-and-so at this Series B firm that's such a great specialist in you know, advanced robotics and in industrial applications, right? So our ace in the hole is we've got the podcast so we can you know, reach out to that person and hopefully schedule an interview and then treat that as kind of the first connection point in building a relationship. And we've been able to build a lot of relationships that way. But if you know, you know, if you're, this is an organic process, but if you make an investment in a company and then they get to a certain stage where there's a set of, you know, partner investors that 
that would be great for them. Are you reaching out to those folks cold or do you try and build a relationship first before you make a, a referral on behalf of a founder? It's a little bit of both. You know, there's some people who've been here at our firm since the inception for 10 years. And so they have a deeper Rolodex in history than I have. Uh, right. And so you can also lean on that and just say, okay, like, can you pass this along to this person? And here's why. You know, otherwise, you know, I have asked around from my partners and I say, who at this firm would be the best person for this company? This happened recently with a seed stage company, and I was wondering who at Greylock would be the right person. It turned out it was John Lilly. Uh, John Lilly just stepped out to become a venture partner, so it wasn't a fit for him for that reason. But, you know, that's, that's how we kind of work around it. I think that building relationships because we're generalists here, we wouldn't have enough time to build enough deep relationships for all of the sectors that we cover. Right. So, cause we're not, we don't have a sectorial focus. If we did, it would make a lot of sense for us to just go after just the people in those various sectors and have really deep relationships with them. To back up a little bit, did you and Scott ever think about starting a, a fund managing money on behalf of others? We've talked about it. We don't like the idea of having LPs. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a challenge. Uh, so, <laughs> I just did a final close of my first fund, and it's uh, it's a it's a new ball game now. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been approached several times, and I love LPs. I really do. It's more about the overhead. You know, we can invest at a fund level personally. I'm not sure what we gain by having the overhead of investing other people's money. It seems like an unnecessary burden. I think the only thing that we would consider is like one LP. That's one of the things we've talked about. So like if we could find just one amazing partner and we were only talking to one person and that would be it. Cyan, did you or have you had an experience yet funding maybe a founder from a non-traditional background or maybe a, a company that has a mission dedicated to, you know, something like folks living in poverty or providing, you know, access to upward mobility or everyone comes on this show and says they have kind of a non-traditional path to venture, but you take the cake. So I'm, <laughs> I'm curious if there's an element of that that now manifests in, in your work at Founders Fund. Yeah. So I think every form of investing is impact investing. So I have a lot of people who talk about impact investing and things like that. And I think, you know, a company like Postmates has an impact. There are people who now have flexibility in their work lives who ride, do ride sharing for Lyft or Uber or deliver for Postmates or DoorDash. I think those investments are powerful. And a lot of people don't look at them as impact investments, but I, I, I view them as such. And so I think that I've experimented with a few investments. I'm always curious if there's a way to make a profitable company that does really interesting things for underserved communities. A good example of this was a founder named Rose Broom, who's amazing, by the way. And she started a company called Hand Up. The margins, I think, were just too thin to work with because she rightfully you know, gave a majority of the proceeds that were raised on the site to homeless people. 
And basically the premise of the company was that it was a Patreon of sorts for homeless people. You could run into a homeless person and they could give you their ID on hand up and tell you that they were crowdfunding for, say, dentures. Or you could just go on hand up and then search for various different causes that you wanted to support. And you knew that none of these were quote unquote scams of any sort because she would go through various agencies that were overseeing the disbursement of the money. And then you would see the end result in photographs, which was really rewarding. So one of the things I like to do is go and back teeth for people because kind of like what I was talking about when I was homeless, you can't get a job if you smell bad and you're not washed, but it turns out you really can't get a job if you have missing teeth. It's the first thing that people look at is your smile. And when you talk, that became something that I love to do is backing people with their dentures. I was very proud to invest in that company because she... She could have gone the nonprofit. She ended up becoming a nonprofit, but she really took a, a hard run at it for a couple of years as a for-profit entity, raising venture capital. And so I do look for those opportunities because I do think that at some point, somebody's going to figure out one of these types of companies and make it work. Couldn't agree more. How do you think your approach has changed from your time as an angel to now, you know, as a VC for Founders Fund, you know, you look at opportunities differently or, you know, make investment decisions differently or? Absolutely. Yeah. So can you you talk more about how that's changed? Yeah. So I used to think about if I make this investment, do I think it will 20, 30, 40X on a 50K, 100K check, right? Now I have to think about when it's time for this company to raise their series A or B, what is my confidence level and their ability to convince the rest of my partners that we would write them a $5 million check? Also, what is my confidence level that they could be worth, you know, let's just say $250 million. So not even a billion, just $250 million. These are things that I didn't really think about as much as an angel investor. I just looked at the probability of a anywhere from a 10x and above. And now I have to think about sort of the dynamics of my partnership, which is super different. And there's some deals that I see that I'm just like, this is really interesting. As an angel investor, I would totally invest in this. But once they reach a certain maturity level as a business, I don't think that I could convince anybody else here to participate. I think it would be really hard. And so in those cases, I don't invest. Is it a business characteristic or are there certain things that kind of separate those really compelling, interesting, high upside angel decisions from the ones that you might be uncertain about their ability to get that sort of confidence level from your partners at Series A? Well, we have a really strong monopoly thesis here. Defensibility and your moat is one of the number one things we look for. And the early stages, that's almost sometimes near impossible to suss out. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I have to try to figure out what sort of edge they have. Like, is it a team? Is it IP? Is it brand? It's most likely not a brand at that early stage. What is it that's uniquely special about them that I think is going to get them over the finish line later on? So I start arguing with my future self, if that makes any sense. Yeah, sure. So I start thinking about, okay, also, how good of a fundraiser is this person? Will they grow in the next six months to a year? Like, do I think they will mature even in that regard and become better fundraisers? Because sometimes people aren't good at it and then they become better and better. And then the other thing is, do I think that they will meet all the milestones that they're spelling out for me with the capital that they're raising? There's a lot of things that I think about. And 
I try to pretend that I'm Brian Singerman or Peter Thiel or any of my partners. And I'm just like, would this make it past them? And if I come back and say the answer is no, then I don't think that I should be doing it. I love it. I mean, just on our team, you know, before we make a decision, one of the questions that I ask our folks is, could we put this founder in front of a VC at, take your pick, Sequoia XL, Benchmark, Founders Fund, today, and the only thing that would be missing is traction? That's a question that that we ask ourselves before we make a decision, before we, we give a yes. We've been very lucky in our short four-year career, but all of our companies have raised multiple up rounds and you know have gone on to 2x or more of value but doesn't mean we're going to have outsized outcomes uh, i think you know that's still to be determined but if we don't have the confidence to recommend these folks to people in our network that invest at series a it's just not worth doing for us yeah yeah i really wish that i i mean if you're an angel investor listening to this then that is something i think is a great takeaway <laughs> because as an angel investor, I never, that thought did not cross my mind. I know it didn't cross my husband's mind either. Like we never had a discussion about like how, how good is this person at fundraising? What happened was we'd figure it out the hard way. They would go out to fundraise and then they couldn't. I think that's definitely something I will always ask myself in the future. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. What's your take on this phenomena of founder top grading, for lack of a better description? So there's all these, there's a prevalent number of VCs out there that end up removing their CEOs from portfolio companies. I think the average is within three years of investment. It's much more frequent than I think advertised. Where do you guys stand on this at Founders Fund? You know, what do you think of the folks that invest in the company first with the idea that the CEO is going to have to be replaced in short order? We are strongly, strongly against it. And that could make us not a good partner for some other firms. And so it's something that they should think about when introducing companies to us as well. We do everything in our power to make sure that the founder is at the helm of the company or has a very important role at the company for as long as they want to be there. We've run across this before. And then what happens is we vote as a block with the founder. And so sometimes we are added to boards specifically so that we can give control back to the founders. So they're in a more powerful situation where they can avoid being removed. 
you know, there are certain circumstances in which we would remove a founder, like if they were participating in criminal activity, something like that would cause us to do something. But even if a founder's performance is not great, we wouldn't remove them. We don't think it's right to do so. And at that point, we would think that it was a sunk cost and we should have done a better job. You mentioned before that you had this time at AngelList where, you know, you were working for effectively a startup, but a startup, you know, involved in democratization of capital and empowering people to, you know, start these syndicates and fund around early stage companies. That's how we got our start. We we built a syndicate that eventually turned into a venture fund. But I'm wondering if you have any good stories or learnings from Naval or Nivi. Oh, sure. You know, two of the people that I feel <laughs> I owe a huge debt of gratitude to. And I love when folks come on the show and can talk about their experience with, with either of them. Yeah. So I didn't work with Nivi that much. He was uh, not in the office very much. So the only time I ever worked really with Nivi was if my role kind of clashed with marketing because he ran marketing for AngelList. So I mostly work with Naval. Naval is just this, I don't know, he's kind of like the spirit animal <laughs> who like is so zen yes. and calm and wise, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> him and also Kevin Law. Yeah. I mean, if you can spend an hour with that guy, you walk away like so much smarter. He's like one of probably my favorite people. I love a lot of people that I work with there, but he was definitely one of my favorite people to work with. You know, I think that Naval was willing to experiment in really crazy ways with his startup. When I joined, there was no management. You were either a salesperson or an engineer. So I was a salesperson. And then if you wanted to build anything or you had an idea, you had to go and pitch an engineer and convince them to build the thing with you. The idea there was that a lot of organizations are driven by these uh, product managers or yeah, basically product people or salespeople, and they go and tell the engineers what to build. And he flipped it on its head and said, no, the engineers here decide what we build. That was very different. It caused you to be really scrappy and kind of skunk works. So like if you couldn't get engineering resources, you either had to figure out how to code yourself and make whatever it is you wanted to make, or you had to cobble together interesting cloud resources and stuff like that to try to like make whatever experiment go that you wanted to run. But the cool thing that Naval would do is just give you complete autonomy to do so. He would say, as long as you're a driven person and you're working towards the same set of goals that we have as a company on a quarterly basis and we reach these goals, you can kind of work on whatever you want to work on. I love that, you know, because I'm definitely a person who is self-driven and I'm entrepreneurial. I felt like I was running my own little business. I just got to do what I wanted to do and nobody stopped me. And that was really, really fantastic. It's very meta. Uh, it's like a startup within a startup. Yes, yes. Since then, I think they've adopted more traditional management techniques. I think they've migrated more towards, I think Kevin Laws is now running AngelList. I could be wrong about that, but I think he is. And then Michael Dougherty, who's yeah. also a, a good friend of mine. He's great. Is running a lot of the the day-to-day -day there too. And he was the engineer I worked with the most while I was there. And so it's really fantastic to see him in a leadership position. But, you know, I had so much fun there. There was never a dull moment. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Naval would come in and he'd pull you aside and he would just sprinkle some Zen magic around you. And then you just felt really calm and more enlightened. And then you just go back to your what you were doing. Wow. 
Unreal. You know? Would you talk with him about angel investing and yeah. heuristics or... Yeah, he loved to talk about investing. You know, I would talk to him about some of the stuff that I was working on. He would tell me a little bit about what he was working on. The other cool thing about the office is it's opened up to angel investors. So if you're an angel investor and you syndicate deals on the platform, you can just stop by. They're really cool about it. I found him to be very approachable and and very cool. I love it. He even let me put, I put a conference together. I was like, hey, I want to throw a conference. Angelus had never thrown a conference before. And he's like, go for it. So I did, and it was fantastic, and he had a really good time. With Tyler Willis, I started the radio show. Oh, yeah. And so Angelist Radio, so that was another one of my projects while I was there. Yeah, I know Tyler well. Yeah, and that all happened from Tyler and I were at YC Demo Day, and I thought his voice was spectacular. And I was like, hey, what? I've been thinking about doing a podcast for Angelist. Like, how would you like to be the host? (laughs) I'm like, you have an amazing voice. I can't believe that you were behind that. That's amazing. Yeah. When I saw that first come out, I'm going to be honest, it was, you know, frog in my throat, scary moment. It's like, uh uh-oh, big guys on the block coming into the, you know, the Angel VC podcast segment. But it was cool. It was really cool. Yeah. So the music, my friend did the music intro for the whole segment. And then we went and rented a really cool podcast studio where we, you know, we went and worked out of. You know, he did most of the hard work, all the interviewing and sourcing a lot of the guests. I did, I sourced like maybe, I don't know, like four of the guests, but he, he did most of the heavy lifting, but he does have a tremendous uh, ability to talk to people and pull them out and has a great voice. I thought he was an excellent host. Yeah, he's amazing. We've, we've interacted a couple of times at conferences and on a, on a few phone calls over the years and he runs a great syndicate as well in yes, addition to everything else he does. Yeah. Um, but it's but funny. those are the types of things that you can do at Angelus, right? Like you're just like, I want to start a podcast. They're like, great, go for it. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. So funny enough, I, I have to tell you this. I don't want to steer the conversation away. But so I'm raising a fund and this guy named Richard Freling, who's amazing, who no longer works at Angelus, but was there for some time. He reaches out to me and he says, Nick, you know, I hear you're raising a fund. And we've been doing angel funds for a while, but we're going to do venture fund back office at Angelist. And so we'd love to work with you on it. And I said, cool, you know, let's hop on a call. So I get on a call with them and we start talking through details. And I'm like, great. So if you have a venture fund product, so you'll have management fees? And he was like, oh, no, we, we don't have that yet. I said, okay. How about, <laughs> how about capital calls? Can you accommodate that? Oh, no, we're, we're going to we're gonna have to build that. And I said, management fee recycling? Do you have that? No, no, we don't have that. So Richard and I ended up working on this for like probably five months together. And it was fun. Um, It was a really fun sort of experience. But he just, you know, worked with the tech team clearly, but they got it done. And so my full fund formation and administration is all hosted on Angelus. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing? Like I just backed. um, So one of my friends, Neve, runs his funds through there, too. It's called Shrug Capital, and he did fund one through there, and he just did fund two. I had the same question because he's doing capital calls. And when you go through the funding, it asks you for the whole amount up front. And so I was like, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, I'm supposed to commit to a certain amount. So I ended up just basically kind of hacking it and saying that I'm putting in a smaller amount as my quote unquote capital call. And then at some point, I'm assuming that they'll just ask for more. It's a bit of a hack, but it'll get there. They always do. So that's the other thing is that stuff is a little bit rocky to start off with, but they yep, eventually yep. get to a point where it's just, it's, it's ironclad. Yep. 
full circle back to to ironclad. Yeah, and they do they do have the upfront or the capital call structure spun up. So I'm sure if you emailed them, they could get that worked out. But oh, good, good. If we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed, and who would you like to hear speak about it? Oh wow, anybody? <laughs> yeah, any topic. I mean, it's you know, it's tech venture investing. I mean, some of the things I'd like to hear about are pretty controversial. I'm kind of curious about diversity and whether or not it is our place as venture capitalists to demand it from a portfolio company. I think diversity is good and you definitely should have it. And I'm a big believer that you should hire people from all over the world, all different backgrounds. But at the same time, I think that we talk a lot about power dynamics. And one of the things I've been worried about is, is it an abuse of a power dynamic? I've seen a lot of investors asking their portfolio companies basically to say that they would only work with firms that have a female partner. And I'm not sure that that's actually a good thing to ask. So I don't know which person would be the right person to address this, but I think it's something we should talk about, which is, I think it is good to have female partners at funds, but I I don't think any female partner at a fund wants to be a statistic. Right. We want to be here on our own merit. And so I don't, I don't know, that's a complicated issue in which, I don't know if you want to touch it or not, but it's definitely something I've been thinking about. It's one of the reasons why I didn't join the, the all raise movement is I didn't feel comfortable asking my founders to insist on that. It's an interesting question. Is it the role of the VC to insist on that? Right. Um, right. I mean, we're in the position where we're providing them precious capital. And I really feel like even though the outcome may be good, is it an abuse of power? Yeah. There's a lot of issues with that requiring, you know, women partners at the firm issues with that. Uh, we see all these, these men in the industry that have been accused of horrible things against women that, you know, then go and hire a female partner at their firm and say, it's, you know, not that, not for the novelty of it, but then, you know, everyone's responding that, you know, it was just a reaction to what happened. So there's all sorts of wacky responses and, and I think about how horrible that is for her. Exactly. Right. Right. That she has to defend that instead of just being, yeah. yeah. I think that while it's admirable, I don't, I don't, I've met a female partner yet who's excited to be sort of a a checkbox, if you will. Right. I don't know. We definitely, it definitely changes things. Like for example, because Lauren and I are here at Founders Fund, we look at more CPG and direct to consumer products than I think the team would have been comfortable looking at before. Lauren called many amazing opportunities early on that the team kind of turned their nose up at because they were just like, we don't, we don't understand why anybody would want to buy Glossier. Like, like what, <laughs> what are you talking about? Rent the one way. Like why are people renting dresses? You know, there's just like all these things that she brought up and she was dead on about all of them. And I think now she's wow. taken very seriously because all of the, when we look at like the person whose portfolio that we are jealous of, we look at Kirsten Green from Forerunner and yeah. how she's nailed so many of these that we got so wrong that so many people got wrong. Is it because she's female? Perhaps, but you know, they're definitely, 
when you're looking at products that you understand that you use, maybe you have an edge over a male counterpart. I'm not sure. But we we have seen an uptick in our interest because I think there's two of us. But I think that I definitely would. I mean, we we Crunchbase just released a thing the other day. It was a diversity statistic and we ranked number two as far as number of deals done. And we were like 25% of the deals we've done have female founders. And that's not because we're like trying to do that because that's very goes very against what we believe in. It's because these founders happen to be female and they happen to have figured out that we're a good partner for them. And they walk through our door and they happen to have amazing companies. And that's how it works for us anyway. So I don't think they're all here because they're that number or that statistic exists because I'm here. It's interesting. Sian, is there an investor in particular that you look to for inspiration or, or maybe an investor that's, that you feel like has influenced you most? Oh, yes. I really like Mark Andreessen, Kirsten Green, Keith Raboy. He's definitely one of my favorites. Paul Graham. Roy Bahat. Yeah. Roy's great. I love Roy. Just had him on the, on the show a couple months ago. Hunter Walk. Which is great as well. Yeah. Oh, her name is escaping me right now, but I, I love her. She's like one of the top syndicate leaders on AngelList. And I should know her name. Genoa Ventures. Uh, Jenny Rook. Jenny? Yeah, Jenny, Jenny Rook. Rook. Yeah. Yeah. She's an unsung hero. Like, she's one of the best there is. Really? And nobody's heard of her. Not really. <laughs> I mean, she's so good. All right. If you get to hear her speak, I mean, if you could get her on the show, like, she is legitimately amazing I'm gonna back her syndicate and reach out tonight yeah awesome sign what's the best way for uh listeners to connect with you twitter yeah twitter i'm at scientist c-y-a-n-t-i-s-t pink hair and pink hair yep <laughs> that that photograph is funny because it a friend of mine and i did that and it's us trying to recreate what the future looked like in the 80s <laughs> i get it now with that there's like some sort of like metal sunglass visor sort of thing yeah yeah so that's what we were supposed to be living in today <laughs> love it love it <laughs> all right well twitter it is well Cyan, this has been uh this has been so much fun i i really appreciate you know the candid responses and just being yourself and and being so approachable and spending your time with us today absolutely and thanks for having me on i really appreciate the opportunity that will wrap up today's episode thanks for joining us here on the show and if you'd like to get involved further you can join our investment group for free on angelist head over to angel.co and search for new stack ventures there you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow see how we choose startups to invest in and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose as always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.